Before we start today, I wanted to note that after today's discussion with Josh Heath, the newest member of the Mage the Podcast crew, I also included a number of interviews I did with presenters at Gen Con. They include a conversation with Nathan Sievert of 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade, Matt McElroy of Onyx Path and Drive Through RPG about the current state of the Storyteller Vault and community publishing, Buckle, one of the storytellers for Uncanny Valley, which is a Hunter the Vigil live play. And finally, a conversation with Mike Tomasek, one of the writers for Geist the Sin Eaters, about how Chronicle of Darkness Underworld works compared to World of Darkness. Our show hasn't really talked before about Chronicles of Darkness and games outside of Old World of Darkness, so if you think it's a good idea and you want to hear more about it, drop us a line, magethepodcast at gmail.com. Alternatively, if you hate it and you want us to be Old World of Darkness purists, also drop us a line, magethepodcast at gmail.com. And with that, the interview with Josh. Hi, Mage fans. This is Terry Robinson and his co-host, Josh Heath, with Mage the Podcast. And we are talking to you about a wrap-up of Gen Con 2019. Josh, how you doing? I am doing really well. You should be Gen Con high. You won Gen Con, I'd like to think. So uh, Gen Con is a large gaming convention that occurs each year in Indianapolis. And this year, it was somewhere between sixty and 70,000 perfectly nice people jammed into the Indianapolis Convention Center. And my takeaway was everything in downtown Indianapolis is 0.3 miles away from everything else. It appears to occupy some sort of non-Euclidean space. And it was wonderful to walk about it in contrast to, say, New York Comic Con, where you just feel as if you're a sandworm slowly moving through the desert, just like a shore on a wall of people. Or alternatively, Dragon Con, where it goes alternatively between like you being in the crushed mag- masses of a Baghdad marketplace and having to cross some sort of asphalt like hellscape desert. So I'm going to say this one was super fun. This was my first one, and I got to meet Josh, and that was great. You did get me, and it was great. Uh, I really enjoyed hanging out with you. Ah, uh, thank you. You're just saying that because you're our co-host now. But no, uh, no, I would say that to anyone on any place, anywhere. <laughs> you and your omnibenevolence. So, good news, everyone. Josh Heath is now a- another co-host on Maids the Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. I am happy to be Mage podcasting. So, how was your Gen Con? My Gen Con was good. It was a, a different Gen Con for me. I have a weird question for you, Terry. Do you know why Gen Con is called Gen Con? Uh, I assume it's a progenitor event and it's Genetics Con. Or alternatively, there were a lot of people who were using it to work out ideas on identity, and it could be Gender Con. It could be a misspelling of Jenny Con. It's held in the Midwest. A lot of people by that name running around. It could be the fact that Indianapolis downtown has kind of a generic architecture to it. So I think it's actually short for Generic Condominium. But if none of those are true, I don't know. <laughs> um, so I believe that it's, and I'm, I get asked this all the time, and I was kind of I thought, well, well, I don't know. Why is it called Gen Con? Um, it's called Gen Con because of Geneva, where oh, the like Geneva, original where convention held? happened. Mm, yeah. Mm, picking up what you're putting down there. Right. Like, it's a gaming convention. Did you get a chance to game, or was this mostly a professional event for you? So Gen Con's usually a bit of a professional event. Uh, the first time I went, which was the 50th anniversary, I was press and running game. So I ran five uh, V5 sessions oh, and was wow. press. That's, is that 20 or 25 hours of V5? was 25 hours. 25 hours of V5 in playtest. Thankfully, it was a like standard module, so I ran it the same way every time, and it worked. But I was literally running every single minute of the day, 
from one thing to another uh, and only got like about an hour to hang out with people at all. So it wasn't the best event. Uh, this year I decided to take it a little bit slower. I only was going to be running games and then going and meeting people, having a couple of business meetings. And I only actually, besides the games I ran, I only played one game, which was a board game called Something Tavern. It's about, it's a drinking game. You're not actually <laughs> okay. drinking alcohol. Got it. The board game is a drinking game. And it's um, Red Dragon Inn. Very, very fun game. Oh, interesting. I had a profusion of game experiences. I tried Promethean the Created for the first time. I got in a few rounds of Fiasco. I got to watch other people play Microscope, which is an absolutely baffling game to watch other people play. Why did this mountain explode? We should investigate. Also, why won't my daughter talk to me anymore? Like, just the fact that a game attempts to address both of those with, with equal intensity. The profusion of board games is kind of redonkulous. I don't know about you, but like I would pass a cube and it would have the Bob Ross board game next to the Kenny G Keep It Saxy board game next to, I think it's Ashes and Orphans, which is billed as a game of strategic orphan preservation, which, okay, that game exists. That's great. And then with the glory of 3D printing and laser cutting, hundreds of booths seemingly dedicated to organizing your tiny bits. I also got to play Scion Second Edition with this Josh Heath fellow. I don't know if you've met him before. No, does he run a good game? <laughs> he ran a pretty great game. I was very pleased with it. And then I got to also witness a number of games and do do a whole bunch of interviews. But if you're ever interested in uh, spending 12 or more hours a day gaming in a reasonably nice place, constantly dodging electric scooters, it's it's a great way to do that. And unlike most conventions, they had their, their food distribution was pretty on point. They had 30 or 40 food trucks around, and that seemed to do well. Like, I don't know about you, but it did not feel like there were more than 60,000 people there, in which, which there were. Like, where were they hiding? Yeah, um, when they put out the official numbers that they hit at least 70,000, uh, I was like, really? Yeah, like, <laughs> where, where are they? There were a couple of times the convention hall, like the exhibit hall, felt a little bit busy, but literally I could move from one end of the exhibit hall to another in less than 20 minutes. Yeah. And I did. Like, I did that a lot when I was doing, like, my laps around trying to find different um, game companies mm -hmm. to tell them I write words. So I was surprised at how easy it was. And when they were like, there were 70,000 people there, I was like, wow. <laughs> Where? Mm -hmm. Maybe they were just including in the count people walking by the state houses nearby. And <laughs> no, no, because like I didn't see everything this year. You'll never see everything at Gen Con, but I didn't go over to Lucas Oil Stadium this year. Um, they had a lot more stuff over there. Um, so I imagine there were a ton of people over there and then all of the different hotels host events. So they, yeah. people just spread out very effectively. It's very well designed uh, for the amount of people they have. And I was identified by voice. Someone is like, mm. you're the mage of the podcast guy. And I'm like, I'm the mage of the podcast guy. And the person then said, you're great. I love you. I also love werewolf the apocalypse guy. And <laughs> I really hope you had been like hiding behind me. This was my first time physically <laughs> meeting Josh. And I do want a scene where I'm just standing there. And then like Josh peeks out from behind me in some way. And is like, hello. <laughs> it would have been great. I only had, I had two people approach me and be like, oh, I love your podcast. And part of me almost stopped and went, which one? And then I was like, oh, they're probably talking about the werewolf one. I am in like 
the room where people are playing White Wolf slash Onyx Path games. And then one person, Sterling, who I want to give a shout out to, gave um, some really positive feedback about Werewolf the Podcast, which I am the type of person that wants to get feedback, particularly if it's constructive. So happy to have that. I had one person on Twitter challenge me to a boffer clave duel. That person did not materialize. So if you would like to re-challenge me, I will be at Dragon Con Metatopia midwinter and hopefully PAX Unplugged if you would like to reframe that. If you do it at PAX Unplugged, I will warn you, I am from Philadelphia. It is in Philadelphia. I will have a home court advantage. So <laughs> you've been warned there. Bring your John. So you ran a bunch of sessions. Do you care to talk about the ones that weren't mage at all? You ran Scion 2nd Edition and Aeon, I think. How did those go? They went well. Um, so yeah, I ran a the first game I ran was on Thursday, which was Aeon Trinity. I had like the best um, time frames for my games this year. I want to thank the folks at the Wrecking Crew for being really kind to me, and they gave me three to seven shifts for most of my games. On Saturday, I game I ran games from ten to seven, which is great. Like those are the best time frames you could get. Um, at Gen Con. So Aeon Trinity, which was a game um, about going to the moon and investigating things there for people that are familiar with the Trinity setting, Luna or the moon has been colonized uh, by humanity. So we're all over that place. And then I ran two Scion games, which um, were designed. So initially, I'm going to give some background. Initially, I had um, written two Aeon games that were going to be connected with one another. And the uh, folks that I was running games for were like, hey, can you do two Scion games instead? I was like, okay, sure, I can do that. Um, so I it took the connected idea from my Scion games and I, or from the Aeon games, and put them into my Scion games. Um, so each of the Scion games was actually the other view of the story. That was the intent, at least, that they would both tell the same story just from two different angles. Hmm. And it didn't go that way just because of player choices, um, but the plot was basically the same just from different angles. Oh, neat. I got to participate in your Scion session, and that was delightful. Or more importantly, you had to deal with me in your <laughs> Scion session. Like, as a background, I played Mage the Ascension for the first time as a player, like, three weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So I now have, like, four hours of Mage the Ascension as a player under my belt. That is now equal or exceeded by the amount of time I have spent Scion 2nd Edition <laughs> and Promethean the Created. May I share the one stunt that I attempted to do in Scion? Yes, please. I actually, first thing I want you to do is tell people Shoot. your character and a little bit about them and then the stunt that you did. Sure. <laughs> it does require. So um, I arrive at the table. I'm charging to get there. I'm the last person there. I plop down. Josh hands me my character. And I look at this and I'm like, oh, man, Josh sandbagged this character just for me. <laughs> This person speaks to me on so lo many levels. I was playing a a quarter life, so somewhere between late teens and mid twenties, Native American a person of color who lived in Philadelphia, went to Temple University, go owls, and had a skill set and centered around hunting and tracking and social media. In addition to that, I was a scion of the, I don't know how to pronounce the pantheon, nor the god, but the First Nations pantheon. So the Ashinabek Manitou are um, one of the Native American pantheons. They are specifically the um, Algonquin Okay, so uh, Pantheon, East Coast -ish. Yeah, East Coast-ish tribal groupings. Obviously, there's a little bit of difference between when you get in the Wampanoag and New yep. England versus, you know, the Lenape in the Philly area. Yep. Um, but the character is based on uh, a friend of mine who I worked on uh, a book with called Descendants of the Three Sisters. So if you're interested in vampire and Native American traditions, that is a book for you. Oh, man, that is that on the ST Vault? It is on the ST Vault. What? 
I am literally mm-hmm. pausing the podcast to not do that now because our time is limited, but that's <laughs> that's super on my list. I find it endlessly fascinating, the, the pre-contact history of the Philadelphia area, because Philadelphia itself was not heavily colonized. It was more of a waypoint mm-hmm. because it was swamp, and there's right. not a lot you get out of swamp, in the same way that the greater D.C. area was largely not inhabited until white people were like, well, this looks uninhabitable. Let's set up shop here. And we have, we have a great <laughs> history of doing that much to our detriment. So at one point, we encountered some dwarves that had Brooklyn accents, for lack of a... Josh's voice work is exemplary. He, <laughs> uh, with the exception of his accents, which which kind of drift around, and like you can see this little glimmer in his eye when he realizes he's about to like too heavily lean into a stereotype or something, and he just trains it back and he goes... You get the idea. And then we'll just use a a very um, stentorian, imperious voice to deliver the rest of it. So there are these dwarves that we encountered. In, in both of the campaigns I participated in, I spent an unusual amount of time on roofs with knives. <laughs> and <laughs> that was like the recurring theme of my Gen Con. Terry, he plays women well when they're on roofs with knives. I don't know what we should take from that. And we got dwarven blades, and people were like naming theirs. And I named mine Hall and Oats who, uh, after Hall & Oates, the Philadelphia blue-eyed soul or rock and soul, however you want to describe it, uh, best known for the song probably Making My Dreams Come True. And at one point, I, you have to write out your character arc, which indicates your short-term goals. And one of mine was to track down and either subdue or slay a titan spawn, which are notionally the the mini antagonists of the game, but not necessarily. So you have the gods that represent fate and destiny and divine order, and then you have the titans, which originally represented chaos, but in the newer version kind of represent primal orders or nature yes. or things that are much harder to control, like things that are driven, I'm going to say by necessity rather than some sort of ordering principle. And I had this goal of subdue one. So we're waiting. We're at a biker bar, where which is inhabited by, I think, frost giants or ice giants. I don't know if they're the same thing or not. Basically um, the same thing. And I'm, I've got my twin knives, Hall and Oats, and I'm waiting for one to exit so I can just, like, descend and rain pain upon this person. And someone just looks at me and goes, Terry's character, what the heck are you doing? And I just go, I'm making my dreams come true. Ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> and Josh looks at me and goes, you realize Scion Second Edition doesn't have narrative stunts. And I just look at him and I'm like, you realize it does. It just doesn't do anything <laughs> in the system. And you're like, okay. So that was, I, I spent probably the second half of the session just setting up that scenario so I could go, I'm making my dreams come true. Ooh, 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 ooh. I will include a link to the video in the show notes so you know what the heck I'm talking about. But that was delightful. Thank you so much for indulging me in that. Definitely. Uh, I was really uh, impressed with all of the players for that game and for all of my games. I think everybody was really engaged and able to take the the information that was kind of slapdashed. And I'm, I'm no expert on the story path system yet. And especially, like, I know Scion-ish. So there were times where I was like... Ooh, I know this real sort of what's wrong with it and go. The story path system has an interesting mechanic called momentum. So instead of in the OWOD systems where you have more or less usually something like quintessence, whether it be quintessence or blood or pathos or what have you, that you can blow to improve a roll plus willpower. It has this momentum mechanic, which is kind of a group thing based on 
Uh, either when you fail, you get momentum. So the idea that is if you fail, that will make your next attempt more successful. Or if you do something that is particularly narrative important, or if you do something that very much fulfills what your character does in the same way that if you fulfilled something in line with your nature and demeanor, you would regain willpower. Instead, you get momentum, which is this group resource that lets you do a bunch of things. And I'll be darned. At first, I was super skeptical, but it smoothed everything out. And that was great. My favorite was one of the things the story path system does is instead of being like, oh, you're attacking, roll, pardon me, roll wits plus alertness to determine your initiative. I guess that's a bad example because we didn't actually have combat, but <laughs> you can kind of say how you're doing something. You choose an approach where you say, I'm doing this subtly, I'm doing this with enduring force, or I am actively resisting the activity of another party. Um, and those are all different approaches. So it's weird because like, you could be like, I'm going to try and seduce the lock. And you're like, okay, roll, <laughs> roll charisma plus larceny. And you're like, oh, okay, it makes sense narratively. <laughs> and, and for the right scion, that can be absolutely Exactly. Correct. That's, the, that's yeah. the weird part. So that was one of those things where like you, I, I had difficulty with that narratively where I'm like, no, there is one defined role that should be used in this case. I'm old world of darkness and I haven't changed in 25 years. And other people will be like, no, I think I'm just going to force my way through this and use my highest stat. And I'm like, you're min-maxing, but this also makes narrative sense, does not compute. And and then like my robot head explodes. Yeah, I'm a hippie. So uh, I was very excited to uh, offer non-combat alternatives to every like event that people were interacting with and actually designed the characters specifically for that game so they could talk their way out of everything if they wanted to. And you did. Like there were a couple of players that were like, we're the talkers. We're going to talk through this. And I think it still worked. I think everybody was still involved. But that was the uh, the only downside I could have maybe given everybody else a, a few more ways to talky talk if they were going to. The, the thing I realized is w combat is kind of the great equalizer and it forces everyone to do something mm -hmm. as opposed to when you have a social encounter when the person with like five dots of charisma plus five dots of expression is doing all the talking. I'm like, Ew. so uh, one of the nice things about role playing a system, especially with a one shot is even if it goes poorly, you probably learned a lot, especially mm -hmm. if you're ever going to storytell. So my session of Promethean the Created, it, it was kind of jarring because Promethean the Created is a game that's kind of built along a long personal journey. And it's super hard to do a one shot of like, let's do a one shot centered on character development for this person you didn't make that I just handed you. But it gives you an exposure to the system. And even seeing those jarring incongruities, I feel helped me as a storyteller to be like, oh, this is how to not do that. Or this is how to do that. So what was the mage one shot you ran? So I, this mage game I designed uh, around gods and monsters. So not to toot my own horn, but just to put things in context, I was a writer on gods and monsters, and I wanted to take my connection with the book and find a way to give it to players in a way that they'd be able to engage with it. Because Gods and Monsters came out uh, halfway through my last mage game that just ended, and I didn't really have a good way to integrate it. So I was like, mm, I don't, I can't really fit this in, but I want to run a game um, using these tools. I wrote a game um, with the idea that it would be about consors and familiars and the people around mages rather than mages themselves. And when I decided to do that, I also decided, interestingly enough, to make it a game about relationship abuse. And I was very clear in the both the write-up on the Gen Con website that these are the themes that you're going to be interacting with. I put a content warning before we even started. I pushed people to read that again and gave them several content warnings. I suppose we'll walk into that a little bit more. But yeah, it was it was a game about being connected to mages and deciding how much you actually wanted that relationship to continue. 
it was kind of fascinating. Throughout the weekend, I was taking short interviews with people who were not necessarily like a Satoros-level person in the mage community, but someone who may have done dribs and drabs of writing or had played it or had thought about it. And it was kind of fascinating because one of the recurring themes was the idea that the problem with mage is you're immortal, you gain these powers, but you don't suddenly gain moral superpowers. Mm -hmm. So how does that influence the relationships you have when you suddenly have the ability to cause a building to burst into flames? And it seemed like you were focusing on that in the interpersonal edge. Sure, you can manipulate reality, but at the end of the day, like your son is still your son, even if they're not mm-hmm. awakened. And how do you deal with that relationship, even if you can break reality? Was there an overarching plot to it? Or what, what was the driving action in the session? So the idea is that these mages, the mages you were connected to have disappeared. That was like the kickstart, the catalyst, I guess, um, to use um, the literary term. That's the catalyst that gets the story rolling. I had it started I had the game start where each of the characters would be standing around the Chantry room foyer and the Chantry itself is alive and the Chantry itself starts uh, talking to the um, associated figures um, and telling them like, I am going to die if you don't bring my mages back. The way I run games is I kind of lean into the different things depending on what the players want. Um, so I generally have really short notes. Uh, I posted my notes up on the mage group on Facebook where they were basically like seven lines of different highlights. Like these are things that we're probably going to cover. And then I let the players do a lot of emergent play, the things that they want, the things that they're asking about. And I choose those and let those kind of run forward from there. What kind of consorts and familiars did you use? Let me go around the table and see if I can remember them this way. Um, the first uh, character was an apprentice mage. So I'm, I actually lied to everyone when I was like, there are no mages in this. <laughs> and I was like, all right, there are actually two, sort of. So one was an apprentice virtual adept who was the niece of Dante from Mage, obviously. Like the famous Dante virtual adept. Um, And she called herself Leroy Jenkins and kind of like leaned into that style of virtual adepting. Um, But she was just recently awakened. Um, So she was a great hacker and she wasn't particularly a great mage yet. But she also got a lot of crap for being a hacker and being a bad hacker, Um, even though she was really good at it. She got um, she was a, a woman on the Internet in 2019, if you can kind of pick through the layers of that. And then the next character was the son of Vormas. He knew who his father was, but didn't really know who his father was. Had only met him like briefly once um, outside of his, con- of his conception, of course. Um, and that occurred during the game, which was not the, his conception, the meeting of Vormas. So there was that character who was also, a, he was a Iraq war veteran. Um, so I kind of pulled in some of my experience from being in the military into that story, there was a dog, an uplifted dog, whose name was Augustus. He was basically a the opposite of Tiberius from Gods and Monsters. He had a lot of actually like similar traits, but was but this big fluffy white dog that wanted to be human, which was awesome. Very good character. Um, then there was a spirit who was equally ancestor spirit slash paradox spirit. I was playing with some weird rules to make him happen but he was the mentor to dream speaker character in the story and then there was puff who was a dragon okay literally he was an egg that had been hatched by the order of hermes and puff had basically been their prisoner slash servant for 213 years his arc was amazing 
And then the last character was a consort to an ecstatic. So she was um, a Buddhist follower. Uh, he was her Rinpoche. And uh, that was sort of like her connection to the story. But particularly with that character, I wanted to be very clear. I was like, though there's been some some relationship abuse in that uh, relationship, there has not been any sexual abuse. And I made that very clear to the table. Like, this is a line. I do not want to cross it. I don't want to even get near it. Um, it's not something we're going to have be an element of the story. So how did it turn out? I I, I was there for two thirds of it, maybe um, half paying attention in most cases as I was writing up notes from the rest of the show and so on. I just remember popping my head off where a gentleman with a pronounced Southern accent was cursing out Vormas, Grand Harvester of Souls, or <laughs> probably not actually Vormas, but some sort of representation of Vormas, Grand Harvester of Souls. And I just started laughing uncontrollably, and no one at the table knew it was happening. And Josh is like, yeah, this is my friend. I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that, that was sublime to witness. <laughs> Bizarrely, it, the game worked perfectly. I have run lots of games. This game was probably in the top three games I've ever run in my life. I don't know if it's top uh, the top one, but it mm -hmm. was probably pretty close. The players were super engaged. They stopped me afterward and were talking to me for 30 minutes straight. And then after that, they spent hours talking about the game. I've gotten some feedback that I'll keep to myself, but it was very personal in a way that the players were like, did you craft these characters knowing us? Yeah. Like knowing who we were, knowing our experience with the game. And I was like, no, I literally rolled randomly to give you each of these characters. They walked away going, these were so well crafted for us. It felt like you were in our heads. It was kind of interesting because after one of my sessions, the ST will remain nameless of the several games I tried this weekend. One was like, I'll see you all in hell. And then after Josh's, everyone's like crying and they're like, everyone's now on everyone else's Christmas card list. It's ridiculous. I'm like, show off. So <laughs> do you think that you had any particular insight into coming up with those characters? Or do you think it was kind of a perfect storm of your ability to roll with it? The material already being emotionally compelling and just getting good players. I think it was all of those things. Um, I think with players that were less in, less engaged, it wouldn't have worked as well. It's hard to say. I was talking to one of the players after the fact, um, and he mentioned that that he was recently unemployed. And I was like, oh, interestingly enough, I, I am as well. So I understand where you're coming from. So I think we were just in the sim in a similar place in our lives for that to work and make sense. And one of the things I kept saying is, that everyone wants a one shot to work out. No, I hopefully no one is trying to sabotage a game session. So you, you did this background research. You came up with these characters. You had the setting. You had the masters and everything. Are you turning this into a Storyteller Vault supplement? Potentially. So here's the thing. Because of the way I run games, and this is, for me, this is the biggest struggle when I'm writing adventures, creating adventures, is I I play emergently. I run emergently. Also, some people call that improv game mastering. Okay. I don't think that's actually what I'm doing. It's not improv so much as it's emergent relationship building with your players and their expectations and their hopes for a story. So my notes are literally a paragraph of background and seven lines that represent like things I hope happen. As a storyteller, to me, that is terrifying. How emotionally draining is the storytelling process then for you if you're kind of focusing on key beats and what you consider to be the emotional crux of a character or a relationship? 
very hard. I don't know. I don't know what scale to use for this. Um, usually when I run a game, um, particularly if it's in, like an emotionally intense game, I don't want to talk to you for like an hour after I've done that, which uh, you can't do at Gen Con, obviously. Your players yeah. want to talk to you. Usually when I run a game like this at home, it's like, okay, now I don't want to talk to you all. Go away. Leave my house. <laughs> That's because I'm an introvert, and it's really particularly for me like, boof, I'm out of that. I'm like, got all that out of me. Now I need to do something else. This game was powerful in the way that I felt like everyone was really jazzed after it, which like boosted me up. It actually, like I felt really uplifted for like, 48 hours afterward we are going to do a how to run a one-shot episode at some point but towards players in the audience do you have any recommendations if someone is going to try a system for the first time or is going to do a mage one-shot maybe uh, recommendations for the players walking in and maybe how that player should approach things Mm, for the players walk in with a sense of curiosity to everything that your storyteller says don't be afraid to interrogate it or follow the breadcrumbs that they present to you in a one shot in particular you have to do that otherwise you're just going to sit there and they're going to look at you funny because they're like do something and if you don't not much can happen a good storyteller and or gm will find things to engage you with if you're not like reaching for them but if you reach for them it gives them so much more to work my recommendation to players, and this is a constant problem I face, is make sure tonally you understand the mood, which isn't necessarily the same as you can have a high stakes game, you can have an intimate game, but mood can be different from that. I don't really do a world of darkness in the traditional sense. I do a world of inky grayness, or alternatively, I choose to interpret dark as that which is obscured, not as that which is bad. And there is a de minimis level of humor I need to bring to a game. Otherwise, it gets maybe too real for me. And maybe I'm holding myself back from some genuine role-playing experiences in terms of that. But that's kind of a choice I've decided to make in the same way that I spend a non-trivial portion of the Scion game yelling things from rooftops or alternatively trying to get a song lyric to happen in-game. Uh, but, but in the Promethean game I played, there was a huge tonal difference there where I'm like, how lighthearted is this? Not. Okay. How much opportunity for humor do you see? A lot. And at one point, my character was, a, a once again, a petite lady and just actually composed of a whole bunch of children. <laughs> Get in there, Promethean. And I kept accusing people of being Huguenots. The game took place in mid-19th century London. And it just, every time, it f fell flat when I'm like, mm. Huguenot! And... um so that became my running gag because no one else found it funny. Ergo, I found it funnier with each passing moment. But you could tell the moment when the group had kind of turned on me like, mm, we're not playing the same game as him anymore. And I'm like, mm, noted. Trail it in, Terry. Yeah, I think that happens. Um, and I think it's hard to figure out what that balance is. Like, my mage game was deep and darkish, but we laughed several times to release the tension yeah like people made key jokes that were not inappropriate that really like let things lift and for me like those moments particularly as a storyteller i step back and i let people like have that moment as long as it doesn't go on too long and then i'll lean back in because they need that players need that to feel like that this is a, a safe space for them to particularly engage with really dark content the other thing that i liked about watching one shots is 
the storyteller is expecting players to ask rule questions and the players feel comfortable asking them in a way that I feel almost as if I wish players were willing to do at a regular gaming session. It was a lot of cases of vaguely outlining, this is what my character wants to do. This is my approach, not necessarily in the story path system term, but, and then the storyteller would define maybe a system for that, where I feel like a lot of play groups default to, I'm going to use this mechanic as opposed to, I am going to describe this action and then the storyteller will describe this mechanic. I, I feel like that is the one, one way in which seemingly one shot novel play is better than recurring session play because you have that openness to just state characters' intents and desire as opposed to stating mechanics. And that was very refreshing to see at the one shots I saw. That's a really good point. Um, and it maybe reflects to me that I'm a little bit used to doing that um, at my own table, two of my players have memory issues, and so we'll read uh, an entire book, and then next week be like, I don't remember a thing that I wrote or I read, um, and I totally respect that. So I become like the default rules lawyer, which is fine as a GM. Oh yeah, to to be that person. So I'm I find myself regularly doing that, where I'm like, How are you doing this? And then I will give them the mechanic to do it. But there's give and take to that. I think it's useful when players can come to you with, uh, this is the mechanic I want to use and how I want to use it, I think that's a good point. Do you feel there was any particular expertise demanded of you or any different toolbox that was employed in running a Familiars and Acolytes consort game as opposed to a, let's say, a proper game where it's tradition mages with dots and spheres? Mm. Well, these characters didn't have too many powers. So it was mostly a mortal-ish game. Even the dragon, um, the only character that did a lot of powery things was the paradox spirit slash uh, ancestor spirit slash mentor spirit thing what they are you're you're never going to be able to run that thing at a game at, a, at like a table you know what okay. i mean like it was a total like mash of different ideas that i slammed into one character i think you should do that if you're a storyteller particularly of a one shot break the rules make something that shouldn't exist that's the time to do it but he was pretty much like that player was the only one going i have this power what does it do and i would let them do it the dragon was kind of like eh, i've got wings and a claws i'll use those every now and then and then everybody else didn't have enough to worry about so it was easy to focus more on the story and let them interact with that than to worry about like, I'm going to pull out correspondence three and forces three and fireball everybody from the skies or whatever. Do you think it is the case that tabletop groups should be running one shots mixed in with an otherwise long running chronicle or campaign? Should is too strong of a word, but a good idea. Yes. Keeps you limber. Yes. as it were. We've talked about it for a bit. Do you have any other closing thoughts on either Gen Con or the session that you ran? Um, Gen Con as an event is huge. So you can go to it for a billion different reasons. I recommend doing it at least once in your life. People call it Mecca for a reason. It's an experience. If you don't like big crowds, actually Gen Con like has moments where it's bad, but otherwise it's not terrible, even though there's tons of people there. And for me, like I don't like crowds, so that's actually kind of impressive. I think it's an awesome event. If you've run a one-shot or you have thoughts on how to run a one-shot or you'd like to participate in a one-shot, send us an email at matesthepodcast at gmail.com. Tweet at us 
at Mage the Podcast, or join us on our new Discord server. That thing's been an absolute hoot, in my opinion, because my biggest complaint with the podcast was that there wasn't enough conversation with the audience, and boy howdy, has that helped fill in that gap. Hi, Mage fans. This is Terry Robinson with Mage the Podcast, and I have the distinguished pleasure of talking with Nason Sievert from 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade. Thank you so much for talking to thank us you today. For, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming here to our little event. It's really awesome. This, uh, this Zoom... This is almost what I bought. Okay. <laughs> this is like instead I bought that thing. It was a little bit more expensive, but yeah, I almost got this. Or it was like get the zoom, get the zoom. So that's cool. I like that. Yeah, the big problem is I accidentally bought two condenser mics, not realizing that this in no way will provide power to this. Oh. <laughs> so this morning I went to all of the music supply houses in the greater Indianapolis area and uh-huh. I found a nice place where I'm like, do you have mics that are also cheap? Because I went to the first place and they're like, oh, we got mics for you. It's a mere $150. I'm like, that's horse shit. <laughs> so, and then I went to like the third place they're like $29.99. I'm like, Great. this I can yeah. work with. Yeah, yeah these, are, these are nice little mics. They're, they're definitely heavy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You could whoop a guy. I yeah. mean, I think that this is going to do strength plus one de- bashing damage. That's the important so part. So this doesn't have phantom power. We're we're like no. nerding over equipment. Yeah. Yeah. So Our apologies. Some microphones require you bring additional power to the party. I mean, this is powered off of four double A's. That's not going to bring the forty eight volts that you're really looking for. Either that, or I just didn't know how to use the other microphones, which is also perfectly yeah. possible. What is twenty five years of Vampire the Masquerade uh, doing this year at Gen Con? So we just had an event today, uh, a little meetup event. Uh, where we invited listeners to come out, just sort of blanket invites. And we did a live podcast here, and that was the first time Bob and I ever did anything live where we were actually reviewing and talking. Normally, we, you know, I'm, I'm very fastidious. I like to sit at home and edit everything down so it sounds good. And today we were just like, let's let it all hang out and do a live review. So, And what did you review? We reviewed Demon the Fallen. Yeah, it's the first time I had ever read the book. I was always interested in it, but never bothered to pick it up and read it. So we gave it, I don't think we gave it as thorough a review as we normally do based on our time constraints. But yeah, it was, it was an enjoyable book. I really enjoyed it. Uh, many of our listeners probably know your work from either the podcast or the Curse of Cain online chronicle. What is your role in the what is now massive online Discord chronicle that Utility Muffin Labs runs. <laughs> Actually, it's interesting that you asked me that. My role is purely administrative. I don't storytell on that. I have no idea what kind of stories are being told. And the reason for that is very simple. I just simply don't have the time to dedicate to my level of satisfaction. I do all of the editing. I do all the web design stuff. I do all of our Patreon administration. And so because of that, I don't really have time to dedicate to storytelling. So purely administrative. When somebody joins our Patreon and we give them their link that they're entitled to, that's basically what I do. I okay. go, I go, hey, here you go. Well, if we can dig into that a little bit. Yeah. I know that there are several people in the Mage community that are looking to do large online text chronicles, possibly backed by the Patreon model. Do yeah. you, how, how do you feel about the fact that this is essentially a Patreon benefit? Do you ever get people complaining like, oh, I yeah. give you my five bucks a month and this yeah. is crap and so yeah. on? What is it like paying, getting paid more or less to, to run a chronicle? So there are a number of difficulties that you're going to encounter when you decide to adopt that sort of model because as rational adults who dwell in this community, you understand that you're, you're sort of exchanging your time as a reward for people that support you. I've always emphasized if you like our podcast and you'd like to, if you'd like the opportunity to engage with us as storytellers, here's the process that you can go about. But a lot of times what you're going to encounter is people who believe, and rightly so I think, they believe that they're paying 
to play in a game. And that's not how I present it. That's not how I've ever presented it. What I is present, the presentation? I, I present it as it is a reward. If you look at like Matt Dawkins, for instance, okay. Matt Dawkins has one and, you know, he'll, he'll offer like a monthly package. Like, you know, uh, he'll run a game, this many games during the month and you can participate in it. And so to me, that makes perfect sense, right? I, as a creator, I volunteer my time and you volunteer your support and that's the common ground but a lot of people they just want a place to play yeah they don't give a shit or they don't they don't care what you're offering they don't care how you're packaging it and they're going to demand your time and your attention it's not everybody it's not even like 10 percent of people but there are people that they don't care how you call it they think it's one way and nothing you say will change that hmm. how did you come up with the pricing uh just kind of shooting in the dark. Okay. Honestly, when we set up the Patreon, as far as I know, there wasn't really anybody that was offering anything similar. Okay. In in at least like in the Vampire the Masquerade, White Wolf, World of Darkness sphere. And so I, I basically said, you know, what would be a value to me as a player? I were interested in a podcast. And so that's kind of like just how we came up with it. And the first couple of months was a little troubleshooting to kind of see like, okay, what it, what would be worth our time and their backing as a player or okay. as a listener? So to people who would want to run a, a chronicle like this, either for pay or just a large online Discord chronicle, do you have any advice on how to manage time or player expectations? I think it, the same advice I'd give for this is uh, what I'd give any podcaster okay. making a podcast. Decide on a schedule and compartmentalize. I'm only going to be available from this time to this time, and it's up to you to come to me and stick to it you know if you make a schedule you know if you're, you make a podcast you know as a podcaster people are going to expect your your podcast to come out at a certain time if you miss that you're going to have problems if you're unreliable you're going to have problems so i would say make sure you know what you're getting into because this can be a 24 7 thing take my advice do not make it a 24 7 thing make specific times be on in those times be available and then go from there but a lot of it is just going to be it's going to come down to the tempo you set with your players and, you know, just having boundaries and limitations. How long have you been running it in total at this point? Uh, over two years. Okay. So I think we started it in June of 97 or 2017, not 97. Okay. That would be way longer. Um, so I think, I think a little over two years now. Okay. How has it changed over that time, except for maybe the number of players? Do you feel like the nature of it has fundamentally yeah. changed? So it, it, it has changed in a lot of ways because when we first started, Bob and I were both very much like, let's get on and we're just going to be on all the time and we're just going to be constantly available. Mm -hmm. And it grows and it grows and it grows because you have, you know, 30 people, you have 40 people, you have 50 people, you have however many people you get to. It's, it's nearly impossible to keep track. It would be 100% impossible for us to run this game if it were just Bob and I doing it. Okay. So, you know, eventually we had to find volunteers, people that were willing to take on the mantle of, you know, staff members, people to watch rooms, to keep up on scenes, people that we could delegate to. So I would just say as the scope increases, be aware that it, it may be nearly impossible to keep up with it. Do you have anything backstage to help everyone keep track of kind of what's going on? Like if a if you if one of your assistants takes care of running a scene and that feeds into the the emerging yeah. plot narrative, how does that work? Microsoft. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, we we use uh, we use OneNote for just about everything that we do. Okay. And OneNote is the way that we've been able to keep track of plot of NPCs, of story developments, of changes, and just um, using Discord. 
you know, creating little secret rooms between player okay. and staff and just having private conversations and then trying to keep a log of everything. And um, we also, one thing that we did was we created a role in our community uh, called Ambassadors. Okay. And they're basically players that have a really solid understanding of the story we're telling and of the game. And they have sort of volunteered for the responsibility of kind of like helping to guide new players in. Because once, once you have, you know, over, once you have over like 20 people, probably over 10. Yeah. When someone new comes on, it can be incredibly difficult for them to get involved in the game. So you kind of need somebody to help them, guide them through. And, but it also depends on you as a storyteller. Okay. If you're not a super involved storyteller and you're just kind of like, hey, here's a place people can role play, you may not have those problems. But Bob and I are, are, are very diligent as storytellers when, when I'm storytelling. You're probably one of the largest properties that exists in Old World of Darkness. And you're reasonably responsive to your membership. You run this giant chronicle. A lot of people are probably asking for your pensions and giving to them. Where would you like to see Old World of Darkness go? Like if you had a sit-down meeting with White Wolf and said, hey, V5 came out. This is how I think you should move these lines forward. Do you have any thoughts on where you would like to see Old World of Darkness gaming going writ large? As a fan of the material, I still am befuddled by the fantasy of special people I'll never get to meet running the game. What I mean by that is I just want them to keep telling a story and I'm just willing to take the ride. I, I don't want to give any input as a player. I feel like me giving an input to the author and okay. the way that the author creates the story is almost doing a disservice because mm -hmm. like I still like people that are into wrestling and they're like, it's still real to me. Yeah. Like that's, that's how it is to me. Like I, I deeply respect people that create the material because the Vampire the Masquerade and sort of like the world of darkness in general has been responsible like through six degrees of separation for all of my friends. Okay. You know, the woman that I love, all of the relationships that I've, I've accumulated over the last 10 or 15 years have in some way, shape or form come about because of this game. And so I am content to commentate, but I will stand out of the way of those that are creating. Okay, let me let me change this slightly from a business perspective. So say uh, say White Wolf says, "Hey, we want to make this game much more accessible, or we want to provide tools to get more groups to get up and running." What do you wish existed in that regard, if anything? Mm, that is a good question. Um, I think we have we have a video game coming out. Hopefully, that video game is very good and it's true to the genre. If it stays true to the genre, I have no problem supporting it. Like you know, it's my own creation. I think as long as they stay true to what the f like foundations of the game is, and they don't sort of like sanitize it okay. for a newer generation, like it's cool because it's kind of edgy. You know, it's kind of subversive. I think that they should stay with that. I, I that that's all I hope. I hope that the game stays as the game was created in that regard. Update the story, you know. Keep move the plot it, going. Move, right, keep the plot going, move it into a new era, but don't lose that really interesting thing that made it interesting in the first place. It seems interesting in that I, I imagine you and I both started playing these games in the 90s yeah. uh, and, and maybe really hit our stride in the early 2000s. What was edgy in the 90s is not edgy now. Yeah, right. and, and it's right. kind of weird. The next generation of edgy is actually this kind of radical acceptance right. where we where the, the idea of an edgelord, of someone who is just trying to, to, to be a rapscallion and, and ruffle people's yeah, feathers, yeah. it's almost like it is, it is radical and defiant to not do that now. Yeah, I, I want it to stay true to his uh, to the aesthetic that they sort of formed this game with. You know, okay. everybody deserves respect, 
And that's important, right? But as sort of the revisions of the Anarch books and the Camarilla books proved, you can remain true to the game without offending people. Okay. You know, 100%. Don't go out of your way to offend people. And I don't think that when they came out with this game, they were, like, looking to offend people. I just think they were less sensitive. So I would say, you know, be true to what the game is. It's not sparkly vampires. Just keep it cool. You know, that's it. Just stay true to what you created. Thank you so much, Steve. Anything else you'd like to leave with our audience? Mm -hmm. If nothing else, thank you so much for the work you're doing and encouraging people to get together and tell stories with friends of theirs that are important. Yeah. Um, that's that's the only thing that I, I really have to say. Like, thank you for listening. If you listen, and if you don't, check us out. Where can we check you out? Uh, UtilityMuffinLabs.com. Thank I, you. I have that podcast. I have a bunch of other podcasts. So yeah, hopefully you find something you like. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, Mage fans. This is Terry Robinson with Mage of the Podcast, and I have the distinguished pleasure to speak with Matt McElroy at Gen Con 2019. Thanks for having me. So you have a number of hats in the world of White Wolf, Onyx Path, drive Through RPG. What are they? So for Onyx Path Publishing, I am the operations director of the entire company. And that means I handle all of our sales channels, like our relationship with drive Through RPG, Amazon, Indie Press Revolution, Studio 2. I assist with our Kickstarter fulfillment and our retail outreach. I also think about our marketing plans and how we're announcing different things that are coming up new book, existing books, how we're interacting with RPGNet and other online communities, talk to podcasts about new projects that we've got coming up, and uh, I make introductions with some of our developers to podcast or Twitch to get the interviews done. So basically, I keep the company functioning on a day-to-day basis. I annoy the developers until they give me a product that I can then sell. Beyond that, I also do some development. Okay. Uh, like I'm currently developing World of Darkness Ghost Hunters, which is a mortals book for all five 20th anniversary lines. So it's all about paranormal investigators. So that is World of Darkness, not Chronicles Correct. of Darkness. Yep. Okay, so we're getting yeah. new World of Darkness books. Yeah. it's uh, If you remember uh, World of Darkness Mafia and World of Darkness Sorcerer, it's a mortals book that can be used with any of the lines. Okay. So that's the idea behind this. Blood dim tides. <laughs> yeah, it's um, all about paranormal investigators investigating weird stuff. Most of the time they think it's a haunted house, but it could be a Nosferatu Warren or okay. a Freehold, or those jerks in the syndicate might be hiring them to investigate something, and if they get killed, well, now they know that there's something there. Okay. <laughs> and the syndicate didn't lose anything. And Pentex's Red Network has horrible reality television that's all about paranormal investigators getting destroyed by monsters. Is this going to be the first of many books in that um, line, or is this it, kind th- of a... This is sort of a supplement for all five of the 20th anniversary lines that we've published, and we're going to see how it does. Okay. And if it blows up, we'll pitch more books like that. So as a person that consumes World of Darkness games, I have the crate of stuff from Indie Press Revolution that sure. is the nice yeah. version of all the 20s. As a player, what can I do besides just buy, not buy, to maybe indicate where I'd like to see a line go? Uh, definitely participate in like our Facebook discussion group, okay. uh, podcasts like this, our brand new Twitch channel that we just started this last week. Um, get involved with the community. And that leads into my other role is I run the Storytellers Vault as part of a partnership between uh, White Wolf and Drive RPG. Publish content on Storytellers Vault that you think would be cool and get 
your friends to publish that kind of content. If you want to see new tradition books, get started writing them. If you want to see new antagonist factions or a new chronicle, I personally would love it if you published a new chronicle because I could play it at my table. And it's not one I would have to write. Is there ever any competition within there? Like, so say a player comes up with a new tradition book and Onyx Path looks at it and goes, this guy's onto something or this writer is onto something. We've hired a number of freelancers that have published on Storyteller's Vault. Oh, interesting. Um, the new Chicago book we did for V5. Okay, Chicago uh, by Night. Yeah, a couple of uh, the freelancers publish on Storyteller's Vault. And that acted as a writing sample for us to show their knowledge of the setting, their interest, their passion in the work. The fact that they could get a project from beginning to end and publish it themselves told us that that's a great freelancer we should be talking to. So yeah, we are definitely paying attention to things like Storyteller's Vault and DM's Guild and the Storypath Nexus that we just launched for Scion as a way of getting to know new writers, getting to find out what topics people are interested in. If lots of people are really excited about a book about where hyenas well we're going to take and look at that and figure out why of all animals you would wear hyenas being the hey, hottest the wear thing. salmon supplement that came out on april 1st this year was pretty next level that's it all was. i'm saying it that was, was a little op they need they need to dial that <laughs> in a little bit but, but um yeah we definitely want the community to publish stuff that's why storytellers vault exists is to give that kind of outlet to the community, and it tells us and White Wolf and some of Modifius and the other partners that are publishing World of Darkness what the community is passionate about. Especially, even if you don't publish a book, but you go on there and you review titles that other people have done, and you say, I want to see more of this kind of thing. I want to see more breed books for Werewolf. I want to see more antagonist books for Mage. I want to see massive amounts of Bali content for Vampire. <laughs> Um, that tells us a lot about what the community is interested in. And especially getting involved and in, in backing our Kickstarters and commenting on our forums and jumping on the Facebook page and reading Rich's Monday Meeting Notes blog and getting excited about projects, um, giving us that kind of feedback. Is there anything on the Storyteller Vault that has surprised you either in how well it has sold or the following it's developed or alternatively how poorly? Like a case where you really thought the audience would be interested in this, it was well written, but it still seemed to fall flat. A couple of things surprised me because historically, By Night books, aside from the original Chicago By Night, weren't huge movers because okay. they're kind of zeroed in on a specific location. And if I'm running a game in Chicago and somebody publishes a book in Paris, well, that's not super interesting for my particular game. So it was always challenging to figure out as a company, do we want to do more location books? The Storytellers Vault community has done a lot of story uh, location books, and they've sold really well, and I think that's awesome. The other thing the community really wants that, that people publishing on Storytellers Vault are not doing enough of is adventures. Because okay. there are people getting their group together on a Friday night and they want to play, but the storyteller has work, kids, you know, busy. They don't have time to create an adventure. They would love to be able to support an author that's published adventures on the vault because that gives them stuff to do right away. So I personally would love to see more adventures or chronicles. It could be a whole book like a Giovanni Chronicles type okay. thing. Or, uh, you know, I would, for Mage, I'd love to see a Hollow Ones Chronicle. Um, and I think those would sell really well. Okay. So I'm a storyteller. I say I sat at home. I wrote up. I, I ran my chronicle for my players. If I'm a storyteller that says, hey, I think other people might be interested in that. Uh, the thing with Mage, we don't have a lot of chronicles to work off of sure. to see how it's Yeah, there's done. like the old second edition Mage Chronicles collection, but there's not a ton. So yeah. it, the neat thing from... 
I, I don't actually see that as a problem. I see that as a cool opportunity. The community, especially community authors, could uh, work together and create the style okay. of a new, chron- like an M20 Chronicle. Because the tools are there and the enthusiasm is there, I would love to see somebody put out the first M20 Chronicle okay. on Storyteller's Vault. And then the community will get involved, give feedback, give reviews, and then somebody else can do another one or a follow-up. Or a group project would be even more awesome. So the way I'm hearing it is someone needs to be what I call the first pancake. Yep. You make a bunch of pancakes. The first one's always going to be a little bit derpy, but you have to make that so the second one's a good pancake. Absolutely. And the great thing about the Storytellers Vault community is how enthusiastic they are at supporting each other. We have this great Facebook page. That a discussion group specifically for Storytellers Vault creators, and they're trading ideas, they're bouncing, they're trading favors. Like, I'll do layout for you if you do editing for me. And um, they've all helped each other improve their projects and come up with new ideas and explore parts that they might be missing or I'm not really sure I don't know mu- enough about this particular faction well somebody else will pop in and say that's my favorite clan so it's awesome the collaborative efforts that the Storytellers Vault is doing and I encourage everybody to get involved and the thing that's impressed me are people where English is seemingly their third language and they're still producing yep. text that's better than what I can do some of the stuff that's coming out for Brazil or something the things for the Pacific Rim are just knocking my socks off Yeah, and, and it's, the projects it's, of love you see are amazing yeah it's really cool to see the community come together and offer up uh, new takes on things, alternate settings. One of the things I'm loving is people are doing vampire books in the Great War and wraith books in the Dark Ages and changeling books in the Sorcerer's Crusade and Wild West uh, wraith books. And I love that kind of collaborative idea of different ways you can take the setting and and the historical sections and do new ideas. And people are starting to do some crossover books, which is really cool. One of the things that concerns me with any community content program is you no longer have a gatekeeper in terms of quality. Uh, For instance, I wrote a made supplement. It's moved 220 copies. Chances are all 220 went to people who are listening to this right now. Thanks, everyone. (laughs) And I got two reviews. Yeah, I do want the community to start putting each other out and doing more reviews. And the best stuff will get rated and reviewed and move to the top of the, the seller's chart. And that's one of the things, uh, historically, we've always kind of had a hard time. As popular as the World of Darkness is, we, we have a hard time getting people to post reviews on uh, DriveThruRPG or other sites. And I... I would love it if the community would start reviewing each other's stuff more. Books we've published as Onyx Path, books White Wolf is publishing, Modifius is publishing, uh, each other are publishing on the vault. Let's get out there and let's write some reviews and and, uh, encourage each other to make more books. Now, is there anything I can do to lower that barrier of entry? So, for instance, I have the dead tree copy of, say, Ascension's Right Hand. Mm -hmm. I don't have a drive-thru RPG copy of it, so I can't leave a review. Is there any way to bridge that gap, or for now, is that going to be the way things go forward? You can always review something real. The way DriveThruRPG works is you have to have that book. Um, uh, You can buy books for each other. It was a neat way of of doing that. Uh, But there's tons of other places uh, that take reviews. RPGNet. I was surprised at how many people were doing it on Goodreads. Yep. So, I mean, there's, there's cool sites that you can post reviews of even if you just have the print version. I think that all of that helps get the word out about the coolest books that are available. So, go wild write some reviews uh i want to see that i'm going to put you on a deadline for that review okay (laughs) 
I, I, I have full write-ups for them and episodes that go to them. I like the fact that when I can shamelessly do a review and be like, learn more at this podcast yes. episode and just like kind of have a link Absolutely. at the bottom. Yeah. Another tricky part about the whole community content angle is one, figuring out the creator-owner split. Right now it's 50-50. Um, are there any well, chances? It's split three ways because DriveThruRPG gets their share, okay. uh, White Wolf gets their share, and the author gets 50%. Okay. Um, and if you're thinking about publishing on the Storytellers Vault, jump on the Facebook group, ask questions, make sure you read the fact because it covers all kinds of very helpful topics. Um, I'm constantly evolving and updating the fact on Storytellers Vault based on the questions I'm getting from the community. Are there any chances that, that Split Knob is going to move anytime in the future or is 50 to the author? Uh, all of the community kind of content programs, DMs Guild, Storytellers Vault, Canis Minor, the brand new Storypath Nexus one for Scion, they're all the same. Okay. They're all 50% to the author. And if you think about it, the old Kindle Worlds program where you could write fan fiction mm-hmm. based on Vampire Diaries, those authors only got 30%. Oh, okay. So we've upped that by a whole 20%. And I think that's going to be pretty standard for a while. We're always going to be constantly experimenting. So... And to listeners, if you find a supplement that you see on the Storyteller Vault that you think you could do a good review of or a test run and provide feedback, I have not yet met a Storyteller Vault author that if you say, hey, this is more than I can pay right now, I will do a review if you send me a copy of it. I have not yet met another creator that has not agreed to that. Yeah, we've created some tools where authors can send out review copies of their work, and there's also some great bundles and, like, we just finished the big Christmas in July sale, so mm-hmm. you can always pay attention to upcoming promotions and deals that are coming up, and that might save you a few bucks. I would also like to thank whoever was responsible for creating the You Already Own This banner that pops up on a page when you already have a supplement. I, I think you could have gotten maybe three times what I've paid so far, far if that button didn't exist. Yeah, that was the awesome tech team on, on the drive through RPG side that created that. Are there any new features to drive through RPG that are coming out in the near future to improve accessibility or searchability regarding the, uh, the, the, the media that you have there? For instance, recently uh, a feature kind of was put in beta or came out of beta that allowed you to search through the text yeah. of all the things that you had. Yeah, the uh, tech team is hard at work uh, doing a massive amount of updates on big stuff like how the site is laid out to little stuff like how you can manage your library Um, and we'll be announcing and rolling out features over the course of the next two years but the tech team on the drive-thru rpg side which also manages the storytellers vault tech they're amazing and they're constantly coming up with new evolutions of how the tools work and uh, like they for community content authors they just created a new tool where you can create a special discount that doesn't affect your main product page but you could then give that discount out to say gamers or reviewers Mm. or whatnot and that's a brand new tool that just rolled out last week just specifically for community content authors are you also involved at all with the astral tabletop project a little uh not as much as i do like with storytellers vault and dms guild but um the astral folks are awesome and they're working heavily with the drive through rpg team which is then going to eventually roll out to dms guild and storytellers vault and other community content for people not familiar can you explain a little bit what Uh, astral is a newer uh, virtual tabletop like roll 20 and fantasy grounds and um it's run by a very cool team uh that is really super passionate about getting more people playing games using virtual tabletop tools. 
Tales. I'm running a Pugmire game on it right now that uh, is a ton of fun, and you should definitely check out hit drive, the front page of DriveThruRPG. There's a big astral button, and it'll walk you through setting up a free account and show you how all of the tools work. Now, that is a case where there doesn't appear to be a direct business model. That is just an indirect thing of if we make it easier for people to play our game, more people will want to play our game and then buy our stuff. Is that a reasonable way of summarizing the well, business model? Well, just like Roll20, there, there's going to be a, a storefront okay. that you can pay for premium membership, but also you can buy things like map packs and, okay. and adventures that are prepped and primed for virtual tabletop play. Um, and they're going to have developer tools and things like that as well. Are there any other plans for other tools that can make storytelling or being a story guide um, or running a chronicle easier? That we are in particular working on, not as or much. at least partnering um, one, with. Yeah, one of the things is we look for partners that are that are good at what they do. Uh, the Onyx Dice team okay. uh, creating the Dice app. We were like, it would be really cool to have all of our games have a virtual dice roller. But I wouldn't even know where to start. Mm-hmm. Oh, those guys made one. That looks really cool. Let's check that out. Uh, so that's what we do is we keep constantly looking for, and we're always interested in if people have proposals, to hit the contact button on the site and say, hey, I'm a developer for this, or I made uh, this cool thing, and I think it would be a great fit for this game. I want to hear from people with those ideas. So drop me an email and let's talk shop. We've seen V5 come out. It's led to a renaissance, LA by Night, which has very much introduced a mm-hmm. new generation of players. Oh, absolutely. And they're making the game theirs, and that's amazing to watch. Are there any plans to have fifth editions of any of the other lines or what does that conversation um, look like that's definitely a thing that that white wolf paradox has to announce okay. before we can say anything we've certainly expressed interest in working on any and all upcoming um, projects uh, we've got mage 20 books still coming out like technocracy and victorian age we've got my world of darkness ghost hunters book coming out and then we've got new v5 books and if uh, they do something with werewolf fifth edition we're going to be first in line howling to make some awesome stuff I guess my, my final question that uh, one of the listeners on our Discord asked is, every one of your Twitter posts is, I am Matt McElroy, I am working very hard, I am very tired, look at how I have allowed the world to play games. What <laughs> keeps you going? People playing games. Okay. And coffee. Lots and lots of coffee. <laughs> I've got I've got a, a peanut gallery over here laughing at my coffee comment because Matt, thank you so much for your time. If people are interested in um, following your globe trotting adventures, where can our listeners uh, follow what you're doing? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm on Twitter at mmm six six six. I'm also a regular post on the Storytellers Vault Facebook group, the Onyx Path discussion group, the brand new Onyx Path Community Content Creator Collective. But yeah, I post there uh, quite a bit. Several thousand posts on RPG Net. Um, <laughs> but uh, Matt Nick yeah. Elroyd fan two nineteen <laughs> says you got like a dozen accounts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just the one that's been very prolific. Um, I also run uh, flamesrising.com, which is a review and interview, uh, basically a big blog where I nerd out about games and fiction and comics that, that appeal to me personally. Awesome. So, Thank you so much for your time, yeah. Matt, and all the work you do. Hi, Mage fans. This is Terry Robinson. I am talking with one of the storytellers of Uncanny Valley. It is a Hunter the Vigil live play podcast and stream or just podcast? It is a podcast. We are working on the streaming part. Excellent. I am talking with Buckle, one of the storytellers. And could you give us a quick rundown of what Hunter the Vigil is? 
Well, Hunter the Vigil is the lone human splat in the Chronicles of Darkness. It's not the only splat that comes from humans, but I would say it's solidly the only splat where the majority of players are human the majority of the time. <laughs> I think that mostly human, most of the time. The <laughs> you know, we've discovered in our campaign, there's a lot of shades of gray there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But I will say the thing about Hunter that makes it unique is despite the fact that you are not modified or special uh, in a genetic sense, you are definitely still a monster. Go on. And that to me is the hook of Hunter is that there is a mindset, there is a path you walk and a code you follow that defines your existence similar to a house or a clan or a coven. And there's a dedication to the hunt that slowly drives you insane. What is the hunt? The hunt is different for each hunter. The Similar to the different sort of origins that you would have in other splats, hunters have compacts and conspiracies. So these are organizations and backgrounds and professions that they have as individuals that inform their hunt, the mission that they are on, and the direction they're going with it. So there are lots of wonderful um, conspiracies in the lore that are as different as a bunch of local volunteer firefighters that discover a, a very local problem, solve it, and then never meet again, to a entire corporate international conglomerate that has founded its business on mining, let's say, organs from vampires and turning them into cancer-treating medications for humans. The reach and the variety of hunting groups in the the, just the core game is massive and very interesting with lots of little niches that you can burrow into. Mm. What do you say are the emergent themes of it? Like what are the ones that come most naturally to the system besides the we can all be monsters? Uh, the, the founding tenant, I would say. Every book likes to have a bit of flavor at the beginning that mm -hmm. introduces you. What Hunter is all about is it's very much the he who fights monsters um, paradigm, which is the more you delve into the darkness, the more it changes you. And because hunters follow a code, and it's not universal, it's, it's unique to their conspiracy, to their group, which they call cells, and it's informed by their experiences in the supernatural. And so as you go along, they have a measure. Originally, it was called morality in second edition. They call it integrity. And whenever you face circumstances which fundamentally challenge your sense of ethics or disturb you to a point where you would have some kind of a mental break, you make an integrity check. And initially, they're very easy to pass because you're a stable person. Mm -hmm. You start at seven, you have seven dice you only need one success but every time you fail you have a very serious break it changes who you are as a person and it drives you deeper and deeper into this fanatical search and this need to to take down the things threatening humankind and so the the longer a hunter hunts the less human they become in a way okay. because their sense of what's wrong changes. And that is reflected mechanically. It's m reflected mechanically. In fact, one of the characters in our campaign, Abernathy, is meant to be a very experienced hunter from a family of hunters. So he already was not quite normal in his ethics. But for instance, at an integrity five versus seven is normal for him. In the very first episode he's introduced, he points a gun at a child because he thinks that it's a changeling. Hmm. And he doesn't see anything wrong with that because to him, the threat justifies the action. Huh. 
Yeah. So if you're playing Mage the Ascension and you're like, hey, my characters are dealing with metaphysical horrors all the time, and I would like a system to reflect the, I, I guess you could say, I don't, uh, cynicism, coldness, alienness that, that one can go as they kind of lose their humanity. This seems like a system that a storyteller could look at and say, I'm going to steal just this. Exactly. Humanity and integrity are very comparable across okay. the systems. Okay. Now, what is the relationship with hunters and night folk? Are there any cases where they team up with them? So if I'm a mage storyteller, is there a case where I would ever work with hunters or am I strictly going to be possibly prey or quarry for, for a hunter um, cell? That is absolutely where the fun begins for you as a storyteller. I would say by the book, probably there aren't any circumstances when a tried and true hunter would willingly work with a monster. But the beauty of hunter is it's all about examining those areas of gray, in my opinion. It's all about finding those niche examples where maybe working with the mages is worth it to take down the beast. You know, okay. uh, and I will say that at least in our show, we're a very, very cooperative table. The The players just found this. This happened to be the character of their cell that developed from the very beginning. They were confronted with a situation. It was their first exposure to the paranormal. And they happened to choose characters that were both monstrous and victims. And so from the get go, their take on what is a monster has been very nuanced. In the book, I feel like it is a lot of cells, a lot of conspiracies view it in a more black and white way. Mm. And the journey for players is to pick apart that black and white world until mm. it becomes gray. Okay. Is there any mechanic in the game that since you are mortal to reflect the fact that you probably have like a family and a day job? That's a very good question. It's one of my favorite mechanics because of the, the state of the game line right now. We use a sort of mix between the book that's actually published and the second edition PDF okay. from the Kickstarter. So our rules are probably not totally how they're intended to be played. But it is called a touchstone, and I do believe it was added in the second edition only. Okay. And the touchstone is one connection that is... The rule behind this is they cannot be ever be involved in the hunt itself. Okay. They can't ever join the adventure because they're meant to be the characters linked to the real world. And when they're experiencing moments of doubt and stress, this person is meant to be their touchstone that reminds them why they're doing this. And it doesn't have to be a person. One of our characters, Mason, um, his touchstone is a journal that he keeps. And it's meant to be a resource that he's going to use to help others survive these sort of encounters with the paranormal. Hmm. And so for him, the touchstone is, is inanimate, but it functions because it reminds him why he's going through all of this trial and tribulation. That's fascinating. Uh, I, I think you've given a high level uh, overview of the game and what the themes are. What have you found keeps players coming back to it? Like what, what are the things that you feel have revealed themselves to you about the game that weren't necessarily maybe apparent the first time you read through? I'm really glad you asked because my first exposure to Hunter was not this game. It was years and years and years ago. We played first edition. We played one game and I remember thinking, this is so weird. Like, won't you, don't you want to play monsters? That's the mm -hmm. whole reason you're playing this game line. I really didn't get it the first time. And it wasn't until years later when I had percolated on this idea that I thought I took it as a challenge. When we needed a new campaign, I was like, I want to play Hunter because it's the game I never understood. Mm -hmm. And when we sat down, I was not prepared for the depth of lore. 
The okay. first time around, I really took for granted how much is really packed into those compacts and conspiracies because they're not just backgrounds or types of hunters. They're entire perspectives and, and philosophies, really, of what hunting means. Okay. And the more you dig into that, the more depth you discover and the more variety you discover among hunters that makes them a lot more than just Sam and Dean. Mm -hmm. Sam and Dean, sorry. Winchester I'm from Supernatural. Oh, okay. Uh, the game line came out shortly after Supernatural became a hit. So oh, in our okay. table, we all kind of assumed that was the inspiration point. Got it. Not, not, to, not to be speculative, but we like to say we're, we're more than just Sam and Dean Winchester because we like to take that wonderful hunting thing that that show was so good at and just push it a little further. Awesome. And from what you're describing, that seems to fill in a big hole in the old world of Darkness canon where hunters are presented, but the worldview is never really done. Maybe they, they give the incident of someone's girlfriend was killed by a vampire and now they're a vampire hunter. But it sounds like this gets way deeper than that. It certainly does because it treats them as protagonists okay. and not antagonists. Yeah. You know, hunters very often are the, the sort of soldier aids that you throw into your campaign to give your party something to overcome that's okay. not overly challenging because, you know, they're wise and they have relics and things, but they're they're just humans. Mm -hmm. You know, our vampires will have no problem steamrolling these guys, right? So I like turning that around and making the hunters actually a threat and giving them really developed psychologies that, that do add shades of meaning to the scenarios that you're talking about, yeah. And if our listeners are interested in listening to your work or following along where can they do that uh it's pretty easy we're on apple podcasts and google play we are uncanny valley and on the uh on the twitters that's a weird the way inner to say toots. It. on the inner toots we are at uncanny show okay and that will have links to all of our episodes so yeah i i'd like to think we're pretty easy to find we're working on a youtube mirror so okay. it'll be even easier is there a most recent uh story arc or chronicle that you're that you're running through and if so what is the I, what is the theme of that? Uh, well, I, I will say our, so the, the impetus of our show was we are playing paranormal investigators on a show, a TV show. So a lot of our characters okay. were hucksters to begin with. They okay. didn't believe in any of this. They thought it was all malarkey and they ran into actual monsters. Okay. And our original campaign on Twitch, we played a bunch of different splats in a crossover campaign. This time we're going the other way around. We're starting humans, and as we play the campaign, different characters may or may not be turned until we are playing a crossover campaign. Oh, interesting. So I don't want to reveal too many spoilers, but we are at the point in our story now where people are starting to change, and people who are set in their ways now, we've developed a code for this, this faction, and now that the monsters are inside and not outside, it's mm -hmm. causing some really great tension and a lot of questioning of philosophies. So we're in a really exciting arc right now. Oh, interesting. Well, Buckle, thank you so much for your time. This was fascinating. Listeners, if you've enjoyed this, uh, Uncanny Valley as a crew has volunteered to come back on for a longer discussion of crossovers. If that's something you'd like to hear, give us a shout out. If it's something that would make you throw up a little bit in your mouth, tell us too. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Hi, Mage fans. This is Terry Robinson again, and I am talking with Mike Tomasek. 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 Ah, I just met you. Don't worry uh, and, about it. It's all good. And you were a developer for the line Geist the Sin Eaters, correct? Well, well yes. I was a developer for the um, Geist Anthology. So, okay. Yeah. So that's what I was working on just recently, along with a multitude of other things. Chronicles of Darkness, in most cases, had a line that kind of replaced, as it were, or was the successor to the old World of Darkness line. Uh, Geist seems kind of like an exception to that. There isn't necessarily a, a, a tidy lineup necessarily between Wraith and Geist, sure. right? So what what is the contrivance of Geist the Sin Eaters? So here's like... 
what I w- understood it as, because remember, Geist came out kind of in a weird spot. Okay. It was when uh, when all of uh, the development process was going through. Um, and they actually just talked about that recently in the Pathcast. Geist was kind of like, uh, okay. <laughs> you know, like it kind of came out of nowhere. It was kind of a weird thing, but it's still a really fantastic world. It is, but it also within the ghostly realms of the Chronicles of Darkness, there's been other things too. Like Geist specifically, it was just the next step, a new interaction with ghosts, a new way of looking at it. So, um, what is a geist? Well, a geist is a person who has passed away. Okay. There is one way that they died, you know, that is how they get their powers. And basically, what happens is they make a deal with a dead geist, a thing, um, basically so to bring them back from the underworld. Okay. So, and because of that, they join bodies and forms and then get real crazy with dealing with oogie boogies. So, what is a Geist then? Actually, funny question. <laughs> now that uh, Geist Second Edition is coming out, we're actually kind of explaining that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the anthology itself, we're going to actually have a story about someone who has passed away becoming a Geist. So there's a process, kind of a metamorphosis, as it were. Are these alien entities? Are these spiritual entities? Can you give us kind of a general class? Or is that one of those things that is a deliberate mystery up until now? Well, they're definitely dead. I mean, they were definitely, they were, at one point they were living, they became dead, and then they, the underworld itself formed them into these beings of spiritual power. Okay. Um, And because of that, they could bring people back to life. And, you know, they have the kind of symbiotic kind of relationship with their sin eater, Okay. Um, who is the person that is walking in the meat suit world, and they get to kind of wander around and do things. And it tends to be that, you know, they uh, the Sin Eater themselves has a purpose. So either, like, you know, to help people that have passed away or people that are on the living side, help them th- through deal with grief or with loss or things along those lines. It's a story of kind of um, life. It is a story of life and death. So just so I get the terms correct, it seems like there are three things. You have the person that dies, Mm -hmm. the person that taps them and says, hey, can you work with me? Mm -hmm. And then that combined entity. Yeah. What are are the titles of all three of those? Like, what is the Geist and what is the Sin Eater? When you die, you know, we have a mortal that dies, right? And that mortal will then have, you know, what we call the bargain. Okay. Um, And that bargain will then be a Geist will come up to said person and go hey you just died doesn't that suck would you like to go back to the real world and you know because of course you would yeah um then that sin eater combines beings with that geist and then becomes a sin eater on the uh, when they come back to life okay i'm picking up what you're putting down yeah now this in Wraithy Oblivion, mm-hmm. one of the ideas was that people became wraiths when they had unfinished business. Mm-hmm. Is that notion of your life being cut short or anything like that being part of who gets picked, who gets approached by a Geist, or is it now autonomous of that? Well, you know, in Geist's second edition, basically almost everyone becomes a ghost. There's a, bu- a bunch of rules that, you know, basically establishes how that works. That's in second edition. But basically, you know, there is the Hey, you had something that you needed to do, or hey, you had some, you had some regret, or something okay. along those lines in Geist. Okay, but for the most part, everyone just kind of becomes a ghost now. Okay, it's just kind of a horrible, dark tragedy that is a part of the underworld itself. You know. Oh, okay. So, yeah. so what are some of the powers that a that this sin eaten 
Sin Eater, this combined Geist entity, would have. Yeah, so a Sin Eater, um, they have a gambit of uh, powers. Okay. Um, you know, they have also they also have certain rituals that allow them to do certain things like pass ghosts on and okay. things along those lines. They they can be able to kind of suppress their live, uh, life energy to kind of make themselves be able to see a little bit of the future, um, things along those lines. And then they also have like, you know, Call, for example, which is like makes them look like other people or makes them invisible or makes them like things along those lines. All of the powers are, you know, you have you run your gambit, yeah. you know, just like every game, you know, okay. from your I'm going to kick ass to uh, maybe I'm just going to sneak around or do something. You know? But do they stick with traditional, let's say, ghostly powers? Like, is there a, a poltergeist type or a gremlin type and so on? So, yeah, actually, there is actually some some uh, powers. There's like uh, perhaps a marionette. Okay. Um, the marionette key can you can control other people, control things, control uh, the area around you. You know, there's a lot of like uh, there is the like you know I can make the walls bleed kind of creepy Ooh. shit, which is awesome. All of the writers for Geist have drawn that kind of spooky kind of mm -hmm. cool stuff and put it into that world, along with a whole slew of other things. The underworld itself is very interesting or with its rivers it has rivers of the dead that eventually flow into an ocean is it the traditional five rivers do we have phlegathon lethe um sticks uh, there are yeah there are those kind of like you know traditional rivers i don't I, off the top of my head i'm not gonna okay. lie i don't know all of them uh like you know verbatim um but they were definitely you know and they all have purposes okay they can do things okay if you drink from them um, you know, so uh, one of one of my favorites was uh, there was the the uh, river of seeds, where basically you know you can like grab it and it's got like seeds in it and whatever, and you could like if someone who is struggling to have a child, if they drink that water, they could have a child. Oh, okay. Uh, things along those lines, you know. But they, it all flows into the ocean of memories now, which is a really messed up place. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, Wraith was often depicted as a, like, a storming sea of acid and, like, fetuses and so on. So, yeah. like, you say messed up, and I'm like... Mm, please. Yeah, um, yeah. But I mean, I mean, it, it, the underworld in Geist is very much in that okay. kind of same vein. Yeah. Now, can, is that an underworld that mortals or magic users can in some way visit, or is this a just ghosts area? So, you know, because we're talking about mages, right? Yeah. You know, so, yeah, the underworld is totally a place that you can go hang out at. Um, and actually, um, you know, I don't know if uh, your listeners remember a book called The Book of the Dead, uh, which was printed for, originally for Geist but then that transitioned to kind of just a open source book for whoever was working in the Chronicles of Darkness. The Underworld is a place that if you want to use it as a storyteller, it's totally a horrifying, fantastic uh, revenue, or, uh, area for you to explore. But you can get there. That's the important oh, yeah. part. One of the things in Old World of Darkness was it was generally very hard to safely get to the underworld that was changed a little bit with the game uh, orpheus mm -hmm. uh, but generally it was a they made it hard to get there on purpose they wanted the dead and the living to be separate they had the dictum mortuum that kind of separated the two sure. it sounds like in chronicles it's a little bit it's at least a little bit more visible well i mean like we in in geist i mean there's there's uh examples where basically just you know a door opens oh okay like you know and like one of your jobs as a sin eater might be like, uh, my dudes, folks, uh, we got to close this fucking door. Oh, okay. Because there's ghosts and random things spewing out of it. Or what if someone walks in through it? Okay. And suddenly um, you have a living know, person. The, yeah, those Avernian gates are definitely a thing. I mean, if you had a mage game where it's like, oh, this door opens in your neighborhood. Wow, that sucks. 
you gotta you gotta get some people to help you out. The other question I always like when talking about crossovers: one, we've talked about the powers. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, what are the themes and moods? Where if I'm a storyteller and I'm like, hey, I want to use introducing this line as a way to kind of introduce stories with a new theme and mood to them. Yeah. What do you feel the obvious themes and moods or key ideas that come out of Geist are? Sure. I always say that Geist is drills down to some of our most core human values as human beings. You know, life, death, celebration, torment, things along those lines. Grief, suffering, and also celebrating getting through those things. Okay. Um, you know, that's part of this world, you know, is kind of going, hey, we went, you know, if your characters went through some shit, you know, it's okay to deal with that trauma and to deal with and play through that trauma and to play through those things and kind of get the to the other side. I mean, yes, of course, we're working in the world of darkness. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know, we got to have like everything be bleak as hell and then really brutal. But I mean, there also comes a point where if you've gone through some shit, you got to acknowledge that and go, wow, we did we did some stuff. That's really cool. And Geist really allows that kind of uh, to occur. Oh, okay. We're talking, this is a podcast notionally about Mage the Ascension, exactly. which spends most of its time on the earth yeah. and chi- kind of dealing with both magical and mortal problems. Where are the cases do you feel that a practitioner of some sort of magical tradition, uh, lowercase t or capital T, mm-hmm. could reasonably run into a geist? Sure. Actually, I got a ton of places. Like, you know, so, uh, you know. Spits them out. So, I mean, like, when we look at, like, a lot of our traditions, like, Perhaps um, uh, the tradition of Santa Muerte or, you know, more voodoo or voodoo or hoodoo uh, traditions, uh, more mystical um, traditions that are, of you know, real life religious practices. Um, you know, you can find geists in those areas. You could also find them in perhaps hospitals. OK. You know, you could always find them in the graveyards, mm-hmm. as it were. Um, but, you know, like also there's a lot of uh, examples of like, you know, social workers uh, a lot of guys working with um, and sin eaters working with nurses or hospice care, hospice care, and also like you know, where uh, places where children are being born, things along those lines. Okay. There's a like anything that kind of walks that line of life and death, any kind of area that you would perceive that to be in the real world or the of course the world of darkness. Those are areas that geists would be drawn to, those liminal spaces. Okay, I like that as an idea, like they, they are the creatures of liminal spaces. Mm-hmm. Now, is it the case where geists would reach out to mages at all, or, or is it one of those things where one would stumble on the other? Is there ever a case where one would kind of tap the other on the shoulder, or they might we might get our buddy cop drama to close up that door to the dead? I totally or, think so. I mean, like, you know, geists are technically just ghosts or spirits i mean because you know again that line is very fuzzy in the world of darkness and the Mm -hmm. chronicles of darkness if you yeah if you had a mage that was able to talk to the dead or be able to uh see the dead or anything like that you i mean you could have it be like where you know you're looking at some uh some lady walking across the street but there's a mirror image of someone else inside of her okay uh, and if you can see dead things or whatever, you know, if your mage can see dead mm-hmm. things, you'd be like, well, what the, what the hell is that? Like, okay. you know, like, and why are they hanging out with a bunch of them that are like that? You could stumble across the Twilight Network, which is, uh, you know, a, a system of conversations that geists and well, I, I apologize that sin eaters have. You know, it's basically their way of chatting with each other going, hey, that house is haunted. Or, hey, like, you know, that one lady that says she could talk to the dead totally not legit or hey by the way that mage yeah that mage is a problem or that mage is cool 
but we got to figure out what the, what they can do. Okay. So there's, you know, because remember, you know, when, when you're storytelling, the best way to say is yes, let, let, let things happen. So, you know, let, you know, let people be, uh, let characters and NPCs be interested in each other, you know, allow that f- facilitation of play. Okay. Now you, you made mention of a bunch of geists. What, what does the, the social structure of geists or sin eaters look like? Sure. So sin eaters work in what are called crews in second edition. Now they are basically little micro religions. Okay. Um, and there's mortals that work with them. There's ghosts that work with them. And then of course there's the sin eaters themselves that are, you know, the combination of both. Um, if just like you would have like a mage cabal, mm-hmm. you would have a mage or a sin eater crew. They, and effectively, if you're just looking at them, they all look human. Okay. Right. Because sin eaters aren't like, Ugh, yeah. you know, like <laughs> there's not like, you know, like you don't look like a zombie or anything like, you know, if you were hanging out in the underworld for a real long time, you might look a little bit grim. Okay. Um, you know, but like for the most part, they just look human. So, I mean, like, that's that kind of, like, element of secrecy that all of both both Sin Eaters and Mages really kind of connect with. Okay. Now, when you say micro-religion, what does that mean? Like, Sin Eaters get together and kind of go, okay, we're, we believe in this one thing that probably brought us back. This is our truth. Is that a word with a capital T in the game? Does I'm, that mean something? Well, no, that no, a- no, basically, it's just that it would be, but, like, you know, basically, it's just the thing that, like, it combines them together. It keeps them working together. Okay. It might be that there's a thing that they basically understand. It basically will just help them move on and kind of go in the place where they're going. Can you give an example? I'm having a little bit of sure, trouble putting exactly. my Sure, uh, exactly. So, like, you know, for example, like, let's go back to, like, Santa Muerte. Okay. Um, like, what you know, what you know, is that? So, Santa Muerte is a, um, it is a, a saint of a death in uh, a kind of a folk Catholicism kind of tradition. Okay. Um, and you can look that up. You know, that's just a thing that you can Google. <laughs> to Wikipedia, my Yeah, yeah exactly. Go check it out. Um, you know, but like say your crew, like all had like some sort of Im- religious imagery that was like pseudo-Catholic and kind of saintly or things along those lines. If you all have that kind of thing, you can maybe you pray or work with Santa Muerte to try to figure out more of these mysteries. And it's a tool for storytellers to kind of use to like be like, okay, all of you are combined in this kind of element. We all work together, just like you know your cabals. You know, it's like oh, you like everybody works in these things. Or we all study the same way, or we all do whatever. You know that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know those traditions are very important. That's kind of the same thing. Okay. Yeah. So that sounds even like a fascinating touchstone, even if you didn't even introduce Geist as an idea, but just these small religious groups that may have some sort of secret power that's associated sure. with them that you can jam in, even if you never want to tell your players. Yeah, exactly. This is what, what you're doing. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Because, I mean, you know, one one group of, like, religious people with with one good spell, and, you know, all your mages are like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, why do they got this? That's weird. You know, so, like, yeah, you know, so that's, you know, something that you could always throw into your game. Are there any little bits of either lore or any mechanics that when you think of them, you're like, the developers for this, we they really hit the nail on the head? I love the underworld. I think okay. it's just a really cool, horrifying reflection of our world. I think it's really cool, but it beca- because it's so bleak, everything else is so bright. Playing that with for folks, especially you know, because remember when we when we're playing games, it's a safe environment for us to understand and learn about concepts, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. By the way, I'm a I'm a teacher, licensed teacher. Hooray! As well. um, so yeah, so so that, let's <laughs> let me drop let me, dro- let me let me let me drop some let me drop some uh, let me drop some educational theory on you. Okay. Um, you know, basically that play is a safe place to explore concepts. If you're working with guys, I mean, and say you had someone that 
is basically going through like, you know, they lost a grandmother mm-hmm. or they lost a pet or they lost something like that. The underworld is a place that you can explore and grieve and play in a safe way and go through that process in a therapeutic setting that you can then kind of show like, oh yeah, but like, remember that like life is beautiful as well. I really dig on that. I okay. really think that's an incredible concept that, I mean, the world of darkness is like, yeah, everything's so awful. Geist really kind of goes like, hey, yeah, everything is really awful, but you know what? Life is also beautiful. Remember that. Okay, let's go back and kick some ass. So your two selling points from what I'm taking away from this is even if you don't want to play a Sin Eater, mm-hmm. you have two things. One, this is a game that can help you uh, explore themes that maybe other game lines aren't necessarily optimized for. That the underworld is a safe place in a game setting, mm-hmm. maybe not necessarily for your characters, mm-hmm. but at a tabletop to to kind of explore the difficulty of transition and suffering. Yeah, absolutely. And the other half seems to be uh, if you're not a big fan of how the underworld has been portrayed in the old world of darkness, mm-hmm. the new world of darkness or Chronicles of Darkness has this other representation of it. Mm-hmm. And if you were to just jam that in to your Chronicle, it seems like it wouldn't really disrupt much else. At least in old world of darkness, the, the underworld didn't connect to a lot of things. So it's one of those things where you could replace that piece from the Jenga tower mm-hmm. without breaking too much. Yeah. And, and it sounds like this is an alternative. If, you, if, if you're tired of dealing with Stiggy or you're tired of dealing with Wraiths, here's another representation yeah. that you can go with and and remember also that it's like um, it's kind of almost a la upside down stranger things kind of thing okay like you know it's like a dark you know because remember things have to exist to be created in the underworld okay so you know like and eventually they slowly get forgotten mm-hmm. right so and then for and then kind of make their way to the the sea of memories if you have like you know a character that like has you know you're working with like an ancestor or okay. something you can have in the underworld some sort of representation of like oh I don't know Rome or old okay. New York or uh, like you know or like you know 1980s uh, or 19 uh, yeah 19 or 1800s Chicago before the fire stuff like that like if you want to you know have weird settings the underworld's a really great place for that is it also the case that in the chronicles of darkness underworld it is the realm of memory in that anything that was ever known is going to be there somewhere sure i mean i mean you can play through that i mean i'm not going to say no to that but i mean like basically it is kind of like hey this is a thing that existed i mean that's totally a tool that you could totally kind of uh play with if you want to go this thing was lost but is it really You know, hmm, there's this place. It's really fucking dangerous. But? But if you want to make a run for it, okay. So I'm a storyteller that has listened to this interview and said, hey, this is really scratching an itch for me, but Mm -hmm. I own no Chronicles of Darkness books. Okay. What are the three that you would recommend maybe that I go for to be able to 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 integrate or run this? Oh, if you want to run Geist of the Sin Eaters? Yeah, or at least be able to run the mechanics in maybe a different game. (gasps) Okay, so so I'm going to give you a few few options. If you wanted to do it in Old World of Darkness, there's going to be a book called Ghost Hunters that are going to be coming out uh, very soon from Onyx Path. Okay. Um, you know, I, I uh, wrote on it, and it's really, really cool. It's kind of that mortal aspect of dealing with okay. ghosts and wraiths uh, and, you know, maybe the Giovanni or any of those kind of, you know, old uh, stuff. But, I mean, basically that kind of same kind of concept. Um, if you want Geist of Sin Eaters, Geist of Sin Eaters 2nd Edition is in the process of coming out. And then I would get the, the Book of the Dead. Okay. I mean, I it was it was a really solid book that not a lot of people looked at, and I really love that book. It really kind of gave me a lot more understanding of the underworld. Gave I had a ton of really freaky visual kind of concepts in it. Um, it was really really rock solid for anybody who wanted to write 
uh, or write stories for their players in that kind of setting. So those would be the three that I would recommend. Do you mind talking a little bit more about uh, the the Ghost Hunters publication that you're discussing? Sure. What is that? So Ghost Hunters is basically a book about mortals exploring oogie boogies. Okay. In, in the old world of dark, you know, what we refer to as just the world, world of, darkness. of darkness versus the Chronicles uh, of Darkness. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you got your still, you got your Giovanni, you still got your, you know, your vampires hanging out doing, you know, Sabbat and stuff like that. You know, you still got, you know, uh, all that sort of stuff going on. You're immortal and you're trying to deal with all these bad people doing stuff like, you know, you got like silent striders hanging out trying to, you know, talk to wraiths. But you might see this. This might be the first time you ever see a werewolf. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of exploration of not knowing anything about the world of darkness as coming from a mortal while you're trying to find ghosts. Okay. Um, there is a ton of resources in this book. So I wrote, I got to write uh, some of the mortal necromancy. That will be the f- first time mortal necromancy will be really put out in a book. Um, we have ghost hunting uh, tools. There's, uh, you know, checking out who can mess with you as, uh, as you know, just a regular mortal. Um, there's tons and tons of stuff in this book that really kind of helps players and storytellers kind of really kind of delve into what a mortal campaign could look like. Hmm. So it's really cool. Yeah, that seems to feed off of uh, previously the only thing we really had was like Hunters Hunted or yeah. for Mages, Gods and Monsters, which kind of gave rules on how to do it. Uh, but we never got like, I don't think we ever got a Mortals character sheet, for instance. Yeah, and so, like those kind of things are going to be in that, you know, like basically like, you know, because we, you know, it's very a la like Mafia, Sorcerer, Ghost Hunter. It's still going to have, it's going to, you know, like I said, it's going to have things that have never been exposed to the World of Darkness. And now you can use it. And play. Mm-hmm. If you want to play a mortal that knows how to do necromancy, cool. Yeah. It's gonna be. It's gonna be weird. <laughs> that sounds. Know? Yeah. It sounds lethal. Well, you know, mortals tend not to stack up too well, but hopefully there are, there are mechanics and such to to kind of even the odds as and, it were. And there definitely is. Yeah. And at the end of the day, is. except for the dead, you probably outnumber them as a yeah, mortal. Yeah. So well, you got that's that going true. That's side. true. <laughs> uh, are there any other projects that you're working on that you'd like to share with our audience? I mean, sure. I mean, you know, uh, I just finished up, um, you know, working on. Uh, Stuff from They Came From Beneath the Sea, which Matthew Dawkins is helping you know, create, uh, which will be on Story Path System. Very, you know, awesome B-movie horror, which is great. Um, but I also, um, you know, other than the anthology, um, the Geist Sinners uh, anthology, I also worked on Cult of the Blood Gods and uh, Chicago by Night and then Chicago Folio, of course, as well. Cult of the Blood Gods is a V5 supplement or something else? It will be a V5 supplement. It will have, it will focus on vampiric cults and religions. I personally helped write two, um, one called the Ashfinders and then the Church of Cain, which anyone who knows anything about the Sabbat knows that name very well. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. we'll have to see what in V5 land what the church what of uh, like. what the church of Cain will look like. Well, this, this has been a fascinating discussion so far. It is good to hear you working on so many things to produce the supplements for the games we all love. Mm-hmm. If we are interested in following your published work or your social media presence of any sort, is there a place I can direct our listeners? Sure. Um, you know, uh, th- thankfully, my loving wife made a website for me. <laughs> um, uh, 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 you know, Meredith uh, kind of made this super super cool thing. It's uh, it's going to be M F. T-O-M-A-S-E-K at 
uh, dot com, as it were, not org. Sorry, um, but it's it's basically mfthomasek uh, dot com, and you can check out all the stuff that I kind of do, all the educational stuff and brewing stuff and writing stuff and all that jazz. And if you want to contact me to, for a writing project, you can contact me there. Awesome sauce. Mm-hmm. Mike, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Have an awesome time. And thank you guys for listening. You can't hear the handshake we just did, but there was one. Oh, yeah, totally.